hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Uh, today we have on Derek Forrest, OBE. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, Derek. Uh, Thank you. Could you give us a short introduction or a long introduction, or however long you want, uh, of just who, who you are and uh, what you've been up to with your career and where you are at now? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm Derek Forrest. Um, I was born in Birmingham and uh, I currently live in Staffordshire with my wife, Susan, and uh, I have three children. Um, and yes, I joined the police in uh, 1980 um, and had quite an interesting career, I think. Um, certainly the first first part of my career was uh, quite um, a standard police um, introduction. Um, but as time went by and the years went by, it became more and more interesting. I had more opportunities and uh, moved forward into some quite interesting um, operations and, and certainly experiences, which um, probably have set me up for what I currently do at the moment. Yeah, I think before we go into your amazing adventures, maybe you'll start off with a basic question of what made you join the police force? What was the initial uh, reasoning? I think there was I think there was two sides to that, really. Um, I was always interested in joining the police cadets when I left school. Um, and if I was brutally honest, um, I was sort of railroaded into an engineering apprenticeship by my father, who'd always been an engineer all of his life. Um, and I sort of followed in his footsteps, but very quickly realised that was not going to be the career for me. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy the the factory environment and I actually wanted to get out and meet people and actually do something a lot more interesting rather than just going to work every day, working on a machine and, and coming home every night. So um, I, I did five years uh, with my apprenticeship and at the end of that five years, um, I then decided, let's give the police a try. So uh, I applied to join the police. I was successful. And uh, the rest is history, as I say. Yeah. Um, maybe we can go through your rise in the police force initially. So uh, obviously, you, we can, if you do your research, you can see that you climbed up to a senior investigating officer for serious and major crime. Um, yeah. In that role... What kind of what was the biggest takeaway from that line of work, and how has that kind of shaped you? Because it seems like a very you know serious, stern kind of kind of work. Yeah, I think I think as you progress through your career, it's that gradual build build up of experience and promotions and further experience and further promotions and 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 and, and it's that ladder of, of the that you hope to climb when you first join the place. Um, and I think, um, in reality, the I, I, I had a, certainly a, um, um, a good grounding as a police constable, but very quickly decided that the CID was my route. And um, after three years' service, I then progressed on to the CID, where I then uh, remained f- for another seven years before my first promotion to, to, to sergeant. And very quickly moved back to the CID again as a detective sergeant before promotion to a detective inspector, detective inspector through to chief inspector, and then chief inspector through to detective superintendent. And as you progress, obviously, you're picking up that experience, you're picking up that learning, but you're also um, 
becoming more and more involved in in more interesting things and 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 having a more hands-on um experience too would you say it's well maybe for us because we you know for us it's a lot of a lot of the information we get about the police force is really tv and obviously we've seen james bond we've seen Mm. (laughs) stuff like that would you say it's as dazzling and sparkling as a show on tv being an inspector uh, sometimes it can be, but in, in reality, the vast majority of the time, it's quite mundane, it's um, quite repetitive. Um, but in terms of investigations and uh, responses to, to, to crime, everyone is different. So every, every, everyone is a new experience. And from that experience, you take learning and move on to the next one. Um, and it was probably that experience that... I gained, um, which eventually led to my interest then in uh, what turned out to be the the overseas world uh, work with disaster victim identification, um, and 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 more towards the forensic side of of policing. I guess, like since you've you, you know you're, you've had a long career and how how you've moved into the more forensic side, um, maybe a quick question would be. Like from the start till what you saw towards the end of your career, what was the biggest change or development in like scientific DNA forensic did you experience? Uh, I think you've just said it, DNA. Right. Uh, for, certainly for me during my time, um, DNA was the biggest advancement since fingerprints 100 years prior to that. So DNA, DNA was, a, was, was a massive step forward in terms of the... Um, the, the tool in the toolbox for police officers and and, and the criminal justice system. Uh, so, from what I gather, you you worked with uh, you know organisations like Interpol, and you managed the team of forensic scientists at, at a point. Uh, if I'm wrong, please do correct me. But uh, you know, what was it? What was it like to be involved in something like that? Um, I know you said you had like an engineering background, but you might not have necessarily um, had a biological background. What was no. it like when you started to see, you know, what could be done with DNA, how that works? Well, by that time, I progressed to the rank of uh, detective superintendent, and I was also then appointed as head of forensics um, for my my force. Um, and at that time, DNA was probably in its infancy. Um, you're talking sort of. Uh, 1998, 1999, um, the the National DNA Database commenced in 1995. And so we were still learning then as to what DNA could do for us. But what we did know was that this was a revolutionary uh, opportunity for us in terms of crime detection Um, and has just progressed continuously since then um, to the point that... in. so many crimes now are detected as a result of DNA and and, and, and not only um, crimes that are detected in, in, in sort of live environment, but also historical historical crimes that previously um, had gone cold, um, had been filed and have since been resurrected, reinvestigated and by the application of DNA as one of the opportunities has, has, has led to a, a conviction uh, for from many many years ago. Oh wow, that's groundbreaking! So yeah. it really did uh, kind of open it all doors, not just the future. Absolutely, and 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 we should never give up because 
as I say, over 100 years ago, we had fingerprints come along. We've had all, all sorts of other forensic te techniques come along, but then revolutionary was the introduction of DNA. And as I say, we should never give up because there will be something else in the future, I'm absolutely sure, that we don't yet know about. Well, I, I guess from that stage of your career, the, uh, the next part would be, um, you know, when you were doing disaster identification and mass fatality incidents. Yeah, well, as a, as, 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 as a result of uh, being appointed head of forensics and also being a detective superintendent at the time, um, in 2001, um, Lord Justice Clark um, headed up um, a public inquiry in relation to the Marchioness disaster, which you'll probably recall, which was the um, ferry boat on the River Thames that was um, hit in the middle of the night by a, by, by a dredger and... Sadly, over 50 young people lost their lives. But the result of the Lord Justice um, Clark report um, suggested that the UK needed to develop superintendents at that time um, who were um, trained as senior investigating officers in a role of what they called um, a senior identification manager, a SIM. And the senior identification manager would be responsible for all aspects of um, a disaster response in terms of not only managing the families, the missing people, but also the, the recovery of the victims, the identification of the victims and the repatriation uh, back to their families. Um, and in 2003, I was one of the first seven in the country that was trained to be one of these senior identification managers. Um, and as a result of that, um, that's what then got me onto the onto the ladder of disaster victim identification and disaster right. response and disaster management. So I was one of only a few people at that time that was trained in the country to 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 deal with those types of incidents, Ma mass fatality incidents. Um, I just noticed you said you were one of seven uh, who had been trained. Uh, what was it? What was it like uh, at the time when they first said, "Okay, we're going to introduce something called a, a sim." Were people, you know, clamouring to get to that position or was it something that people weren't too sure about? No, it wasn't something that people were clamouring to, 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 to um, embark upon at that particular time, um, simply because disasters, fortunately, don't come along every day. So it was very much a preparation for should a disaster occur, um, that we would have these people trained and in place and available then to respond uh, if necessary. Um, as, as it turned out, only the following year in 2004 was my first major deployment, um, which turned out to be um, the Southeast Asian tsunami. Yeah. Um, but when I did my training, I must say, when I did my training, um, initially I was trained to deal with an incident in the UK um, that would probably involve two to 300 maximum victims. Um, and then the first incident I actually responded to was in Southeast Asia with nearly 280,000 victims. So it was a, a sharp learning curve from the, the training that I'd embarked on only 12 months before. Like when that disaster hit, I, I do remember it for us. Um, we were probably kids in um, mm -hmm. a school assembly and, and the teachers let us know 
um, and I, I remember the disaster. But for you, I guess being involved directly, like what was the greatest like immediate challenge of the natural disaster? Do you have to deal with when when that occurs? Well, <clears throat> every disaster is different. Um, so so the challenges are very different. If I'm honest, um, we have sort of um, set processes and we have set procedures. Um, and there are certain things on our checklist that we must do, um, but everyone is different. So you need to adapt the you, you, your process to the circumstances as they exist at the time. Um, but certainly in Southeast Asia, it was the tsunami was just the sheer scale of it. Um, it would be very easy to become overwhelmed very, very quickly. But, I mean, the, the, the response was an, a, an international response. Um, it wasn't just UK police officers and forensic experts that were responding to Southeast Asia. Um, there were um, 30, over 30 countries, um, 36, I think, in, in, in the end, responded to Southeast Asia. All, send, all sending police officers, all sending forensic experts, and ultimately then all working together as one team, a multinational team, um, with the common the common aim to recover as many victims and identify as many victims as we could, and um, once they'd been identified, was to try and repatriate them back to their families. Oh wow, that's an insane insane uh, collaboration. I mean, like you said, you know, multinational. I guess with that, the challenges come with. Um, I assume when the tsunami hit, you know, the infrastructure was pretty much destroyed in the region. Um, well, it's not. It's not just the infrastructure. Every everything is is, is non-operational. Um, your mobile phones don't work. The electricity supplies have, have, have been taken out. Um, fresh water, wow. sewerage, um, and also access because obviously your roads are blocked and and and, and everywhere that you, you you want to get to is a challenge. Um, so that was probably um, quite a. An, an introduction for me to, to disaster management um, and certainly a steep learning curve very, very quickly in terms of all the different aspects of what needed to be done. And it's a case then of identifying your priorities and from your priorities then um, identifying your resources and then tasking yeah. your resources to, to, to literally try and make a difference to the circumstances that you that you presented with, and and I've dealt with a number of different disasters since, and and, and as I say, everyone is different. No two are, are, are the same, um, but they're all a challenge. Um, but it's a it's it's a challenge that I won't say I enjoy it. You, you you don't enjoy disasters, mm. but from a personal perspective. And I, and I hope this sounds right, really. But from a personal perspective, um, the challenge to myself to be able to uh, gather all that information and assimilate the the, the circumstances and and of what's required, and then put in put in place then an action plan which then um, is meaningful and achieves the objectives to be able to. Um, not only respond to the disaster, but also to manage the people. Um, mm. And and it's not just the it's not just your own people. It's also the communities that are involved as well, because they're all in a state of shock. Um, so they're looking for leadership, and 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 that's what we seek to 
to provide is, is some structure and mm. leadership to the circumstances as they prevail at the time. And as time goes by, certainly in Southeast Asia, um, I was there for in excess of 16 months at the, uh, for that particular incident. Um, obviously, you then start to see a degree of recovery taking place and a, and a, and a degree of return to normality, except for the... Um, obviously, for the the, fa- the victims and their families, um, life is never going to be normal again for for the, for the for the families of the victims. So, when we talk about disaster victim identification, and if you said to me, why why would you do something like that? The answer is, we do it for the families mm-hmm. because the families want answers, and the fact that the families need to know um, first of all, was their loved one um involved in that incident if so what happened to them because in the early stages using that the tsunami as an example um we had thousands and thousands and thousands of people reported missing not all of them were dead Mm. but because other issues prevailed such as communications mobile phones didn't work email systems didn't work Families couldn't get in touch with people that had actually survived and therefore reported them missing. Um, so we also had to locate as many different people as we could who'd survived the incident to be able to cross them off the list of the missing, if, if that makes sense. Right. And, and certainly in, uh, in, in Thailand, where I was based at the time, I mean, it's a, it, 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 it's a tourist country. And at Christmas, as, as Boxing Day 2004, um, at Christmas time, there were tourists there from all over the world, thousands of them. Um, and therefore, from all of the countries that they came from back home, they had families that were trying to get in touch with them. Wow. And, and, and they go into panic. And if I give you an, an, an example, um, certainly in the UK, um, at the end of day one on the 27th of December 2004, um, we had something like 22,000 UK missing people. Oh my God. Oh wow. Yeah, so, I, didn't, I didn't realize how widespread, I mean, well, national. Well, the, Metro, the Metropolitan Police and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, assisted by other casualty bureaus around the country, um, on the first day took 38,000 telephone calls for an incident that occurred halfway around the world in Southeast Asia. And as a result of those 38,000 telephone calls, 22,000 people were reported missing initially. As the attrition then starts to um, kick in and um, we start to find people that have survived um, the ultimate um, death toll in terms of UK victims uh, reduced to 147. So you can see how much panic there is in the early stages of a disaster when so many families think that their loved one may be involved and may be a victim and then report them missing so that we can then uh, concentrate on the the actual victims. We, first of all, have to um, identify the people that have survived and try and remove them from the list of missing people. Otherwise, our task would be... Yeah, it would be horrendous. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't think of it that way that, yeah, of course, <laughs> now you say it, it's obvious, but you have to identify people that, that are not on the list, that are, you know, finding the people that are okay to be able to actually help other people. Absolutely, and, yeah. yeah and, 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 and in terms of your own limited resources, you need to be able to target your own resources in the right areas. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it's a lot easier if you can reduce the size of your task by identifying the people that have survived, um, and then you can really concentrate then on the on the on on, on the, the victims and the families um, that really do need the help. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you you. I feel like you kind of underplay it, but you, you know you've done a lot of good work in this area, and honestly, you should be really commended. Mm. But um, one of the things that pop into my head is that. You know, this is this seems like such a high stressful uh, period of time, uh, and I can imagine, especially for you, working on the topic. How do you manage that uh, while obviously being kind of under the fire, so to say? Um, yeah. As I, as I said previously, like every everyone is different, but 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 again, in particular with that one, um, it had world press attention. Mm-hmm. So 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 the media. Um, we're extremely active um, and everywhere we went, we incurred media, we incurred press, we incurred reporters asking us questions um, in terms of what we're doing, what progress has been made, how long it's going to take. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that was relentless for the first two or three months. Um, and, 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 and certainly the, the hotel that I was staying at uh, we'd have the press camped outside every day, mm-hmm. um, just looking for further reports. And that, and 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 at that stage in the in in the early aspects of the of the disaster, we'd still got many many thousands of missing people. So it was it 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 was uh, an even bigger story um, in terms of uh, how many people ultimately would have lost their lives in that in that particular disaster um so yeah the press is relentless not only that um when i um was based in thailand i I, I became the international what they call the international imc commander and that was the information management center based in in phuket um, which meant that um, although i'd gone out there as a uk um senior officer um, I was then elected by the international community to be an international commander, which meant then that in, t- in total over the operation, I had 5,000 staff from 31 different countries working for me um, on one operation. And you can imagine the challenges that uh, people coming from 31 different countries would, would, would present to you. Yeah. Language was, was, was the least of the problems, but... It, <sighs> You know, it certainly was a problem, but um, I mean, ultimately, the the coming together of all those police officers from different countries around the world and those forensic experts um, was m- more than commendable. It was amazing how um, we all worked as one team in in it, whether it be on victim recovery and literally recovering the bodies, whether it was at the mortuary sites, whether it was the information management centre where all the matching process went on uh, between reports of missing people and uh, recovered victims and the forensic data from those from those recovered victims. Um, 
and um, the camaraderie, if you like, between those 31 different countries working together was just amazing. I made I made so many friends in terms of uh, who, who you know are still friends now around the world, and I still work with some of them to this day. Um, as far afield as Australia and New Zealand, wow. so you know the um, the cha- the challenge in disaster victim identification, which is the the process itself, is is owned by Interpol, um, but everybody is trained in the same way because it's an international process of identifying victims. We all use the same forms, the same paperwork. So it, the, the, it, it's quite easy for different disaster victim identification teams to come from different countries and within a few hours they're working alongside each other and we all know what everybody's doing yeah. uh, because we're all trained in exactly the same way. That's incredible, yeah. <laughs> I mm. mean, it really shows what, you know, human beings can do once they get together in such a, you know, such a stressful and short span of time. I mean, you, you can have doubts, but in the end, you know, the fruits of it showed uh, on how it's dealt. I guess maybe like the next question would be kind of after this, for me, it seemed like that was the first big event in my memory, at least. But what was the biggest learning experience that you was taken out of this um, the tsunami? What did the inter- international community learn out of it? Just um, to add on as well, do you think that after, you know, that, happened that tsunami happened do you think uh it was put into place for future future natural event disasters or was anything set up after that well um in 2007 i headed up um a review on behalf of interpol um and we produced a report and that was an that was again that was an international collaboration of uh, people that had worked on the operation where we were able to sit down afterwards and and quite openly and honestly say well what worked well and what didn't work so well um, and what do we need to change and 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 we we produced a a report on behalf of Interpol which was then circulated to um, all law enforcement agencies around the world then with the recommendations from that um, and, and, and there were many recommendations um, at a strategic level um, because it was probably the first time, um, and it certainly hasn't happened since, where so many law enforcement agencies from around the world all came together to work on one operation. Um, and it's never really been repeated since. It was certainly it's the biggest um, policing operation in world history for... Um, a natural disaster, um, and fortunately, um, it's not been repeated since. Yeah. Um, COVID really has, 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 has probably been the next massive disaster around the world in in in, in, in its own way that we're we're all experiencing now. But it, COVID is what we would call a slow burner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's developed and. Um, become a bigger and bigger and bigger issue on a daily basis around the world as it's spread around the world. Whereas the types of disasters that we uh, we used to dealing with are literally, bang, something's happened. Yeah. Now, now you've got to deal with it. Mm. You know, I guess so. I guess you've had uh, your hands in the COVID um, disaster as well. Um, 
Yeah, I've been doing some work recently at uh, some of the, uh, or certainly one of the temporary mortuaries that was that's been established um, here in the UK for yeah. um, managing the the victims from from the COVID incident. Mm. Um, uh, what's a temporary mortuary, if you don't mind me asking? Right, it's it's it, it's 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 a facility which is um, established when your normal capacity is exceeded. So, when we talk about here in the UK at the moment, in in terms of um, excess deaths, yeah, then, then certainly for the um, um, normal capacity around the country for what mortuaries can handle. Um, if that is then exceeded, then then you would start to consider a temporary mortuary. Mm-hmm. And certainly in Thailand, I mean the the, the temporary mortuaries that we had were uh, f- f- uh, established from field hospitals, um, and we set them up in in Phuket, um, and that's where all the victims that were recovered were all taken to and all stored until we could go through that forensic identification process. And the identification process then would be um, to try and establish who they were so that we could repatriate them, uh, generally using either their fingerprints, DNA, or, or, or their teeth, odontology. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, that's really impressive. And I guess um, with the COVID situation, like I said, it's a slow creeper. Um, you know, we, I, I never thought about the, uh, again, the mortuary situation. And, you know, you, when we look at most topics in the news and what's going on currently, we think very, you know, what's in front of our nose, you know. But yeah. again, that's going to be a huge issue and it's something, yeah, I'm glad that you're, you're, you're working mm-hmm. on, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and hopefully now, um, as the numbers are starting to come down and somewhat, um, hopefully the, the need for those facilities will reduce to the point where we can actually then remove them. Maybe we can talk about another big uh, disaster that occurred uh, when I, when we were younger, and um, it would be Hurricane Katrina um, yeah. and you, your involvement. I guess maybe the first initial obvious question would be, how did Katrina the, differ to the tsunami in terms of relief? Well, my my involvement in Katrina was 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 very much advisory, right? Um, and and uh, rather than response, um, and the reason for that was because um, we had a lot of experience from the Southeast Asian tsunami of dealing with victims that had been in water, mm. um, and, and and clearly that was a similar situation that they. Um, experienced with with Katrina. Um, what we did tend to find with with that particular incident was we had a lot of pressure from from the press um, who were trying to um, curtail us to criticise the way that Katrina was being managed. And having experienced the Southeast Asian tsunami, yeah. I would I would never criticise anybody because the challenges are just ginormous. Mm-hmm. Literally, so um, the, the circumstances themselves were, were were so very different and contained to to one country, um, whereas the tsunami involved thirteen different nations all being affected at the same time. So it was a much more international aspect to the to the tsunami compared to Katrina. 
Would you say that since the Katrina event obviously happened in a more developed country, the level of preparation um, was it? Did you feel like it was, in your own opinion, uh, better off, or do you think when a natural disaster happens on that scale, you know, kind of the the levels are just all the same? Well, I think I think I think there's two ways to answer that. that the first one is is that we would hope that the planning has all already been done yeah. before disaster occurs. The problem is is what are you what are you planning for? So when we talk about planning, we talk about planning assumptions. And when you talk about planning assumptions, you ask yourself the question: Well, how many would we be planning for in that type of disaster? Well, nobody had really sat down and thought. Um, from the tsunami point of view, that would be that we would be dealing with thirteen different countries at the same time, and two hundred and eighty thousand people would have lost their lives. Yeah. On on top of that, millions of people were displaced and left homeless. Hundreds of thousands of people were injured. Um, hospitals were destroyed, um, and therefore the living had to be managed as well. And when you talk about your 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 planning assumptions then and, and, and having in place your response plans, and not only your response plans, you also have to have the people in place. Yeah. And they have to understand what their role would be in the event of a disaster, and they need to be trained. And even if you've got that, they need to be available at the time the disaster occurs. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> right? other, other, otherwise, you've trained people that you can't use. Hmm. So, so, so it's a very, very difficult area of business. But certainly in relation to the disaster victim identification um, point of view, um, we train people, um, or we, certainly when I was with the police, we trained people that were specifically trained for doing victim recovery or working in mortuaries or working in reconciliation and identification right. centres so that we could then um, go to a list and draw people off that list who we could then deploy who we knew were already trained. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is so vitally important because if you if you don't have your plans in place and you don't have... Uh, your people in place and you don't have your logistics in place um, not only have you got a disaster to deal with but you're then having to manage that f f right from the start on the hoof if you like yeah. from and and, and and trying to um, train people on the job which is very very difficult um, and I've seen um, a few instances in, in my time um, as I've worked my way around the world where plans are not as they should be. Right. Um, and, 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 and probably when disaster occurs, that's when people learn the lesson that they need to sit down and, and do their planning for the next one. Yeah, very in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it is. And, and, and sometimes planning can be hugely expensive. Uh, particularly in preparation and logistics and equipment that you may need um, in the event of a disaster. Um, and for many governments around the world, they have other things to spend their money on, and therefore it doesn't necessarily reach the top of the priority list. It's one of, it's one of those conundrums, really, of let's hope it doesn't happen, happen on my watch. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe just to go back on 
the um, the media side. It's something that I really haven't thought about. And maybe just to get your short opinion of, do you think overall the media helps when it comes to national disasters to give people information and perhaps uh, inform local people what's going on and what they should be doing? Or did, did you do you overall have a feeling that it's not something that really has a good hand in, in the relief? Not in, much in the of an aid. Yeah. They are absolutely essential. Right. So, so, cer- certainly in, 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 in those situations because they are the people that have the contact with the rest of the world. Right. Now, I, I, I always used to have a saying of feed the press and, f- and feed off them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I always tried to um, ensure that the messages that I wanted to get out and, and certainly get into other countries where we had missing people, mm. um, that we controlled that. So by regular meetings with the press and, and, and actually giving them good media briefings, um, the, the accuracy and the reporting then was much better we were getting consistent messages going out across the world. Um, and um, certainly in terms of those sorts of incidents, I always find that they are amazingly um, cooperative and, and, and an essential tool to be able to deliver those messages and keep the families informed where, wherever it be, whether it's in one particular country or, or internationally. Um, just to kind of change the type of uh, disaster, um, I believe you acted as a uh, disaster victim identification advisor in Egypt in 2005, if I'm correct, yep. uh, when there was a hotel bombing in Sharm el-Sheikh. There were three hotels. Three yeah. hotels, yeah. Um, uh, I believe something around 93 people might have... Might have correct, yeah. yeah. Um, so with... With that, um, how did it differ from a natural disaster, for example? Because obviously it's a very different situation. How did you approach it when you, you know, were deployed? Well, the, the first thing about that was that um, at that time, I was still working in Thailand. Um, and I'd actually come back to the UK for a few days, rest and recuperation um, <laughs> before the intended plan was for me to return back to, to Thailand to continue with the tsunami operation. But I think I arrived home on the Thursday and on the Saturday morning, the three bombs went off in Sharm el-Sheikh at the three hotels. Um, there was also a, a further bomb in the in the marketplace in Sharm. Um, and uh, I received a telephone call from my force because my force at the time was the on-call force for... Um, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the event of British victims being involved in a disaster overseas. Um, So I received a a telephone call, um, which basically said, Derek, are you at home? I said, yeah, I came home on Thursday. I'm here till Tuesday. Um, Have you seen the news? No, I haven't. It was early in the morning. um, And they said, put the telly on, see what's happened and phone us back in 20 minutes. Um, so I phoned back and said, you're obviously talking about the incident in Sharm el-Sheikh. Yes. Um, are you available? Could you deploy? Um, and by that evening, I was on my way to Sharm el-Sheikh and um, first on the ground for, for that particular incident. So when these things happen, 
they're very dynamic. You're not expecting them. Um, no. You have you have you have no idea what what is the content of that telephone call is. You have no idea what you're being asked to to do, and you have no idea what you're going to find when you actually deploy and get there. So it's they are as I say they're very dynamic, um, and it's a case of taking each one on its own merits and circumstances, and and then putting in place the processes, procedures, people, logistics, and everything that delivers a solution when you get there. Um, in terms of, as you say, that it's very uh, kind of like an impulsive lifestyle, if you want to say, or very sudden changes. Like you said, you don't know what to expect on the other side. You can't plan a holiday, <laughs> to be honest. How did you like balance, I guess, your home lifestyle with your work lifestyle? Very, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, obviously, because... Um, we all have plans. We we'll, we all have plans of what we're going to do next week or next month. But when something like that occurs, um, obviously all the plans go out the window, and you then have to rejig everything and um, replan. And off you off you go. You disappear. But it's it, it's then a case of um, managing expectations. Then in terms of family and so on and so forth. So uh, as you were saying, you were deployed in Sharm el-Sheikh. So when you first arrived, what was the first thing that you had to pay specific consideration for when approaching something like that? Because, you, you know, it's quite horrific. So I think probably the, the, the first challenge really was acceptance by the Egyptian authorities. Um, one of the things that we always find with disaster victim identification is that many countries around the world think that if an incident occurs in their domain, in their jurisdiction, um, they can deal with it themselves. Um, and in the main, many of them can, except just to say what some countries seem to forget is that you can, where a disaster occurs and you, that leads to recovery of victims, and then when we come to the identification process, you can't identify anybody unless you've got some data to match it with. So uh, again, let's return to, to the tsunami where we had all these missing people from all these different countries. Not only did we have the victims to deal with in country, but we also then had to liaise with all the countries where the, these people were normally resident before they went on their, their, their holiday or Christmas break. And we had to collect forensic data from the families of all those missing people to be able to match it with the victims that we'd recovered, to lead, which would then lead to an identification. So you can't just take, let's, let's take an example. You can't just take fingerprints from a recovered victim and identify it. You've got to have something to match it with. So where do you get the fingerprints from to match it with? Well, they either come from possibly criminal records back in the country where they were um, um, re previously resi resident. Um, but in reality, most people have not got criminal records. So then you have to look then for other forms of fingerprint um, opportunities. So it may involve going to their home address and fingerprinting their home address 
and recovering fingerprints. It may involve going to their office where they work, at the place of work. It may involve examining the, the garage, the workshop, the car, um, and, and recovering fingerprints. Um, and the problem with that is that is a very, very erroneous task. Because if, for instance, I went to your house to recover fingerprints, I would find fingerprints, lots of them. But are they your fingerprints? Mm. So then we have to go through an elimination process until we establish that the fingerprints that we're interested in are only yours because we're going to send those then to another country and ask them to match them against any of the victims that they've recovered. It's the same with dental records. So if we recover a victim and identify that or or go about the process of identifying that victim using teeth, we've got to have something to match it with. So that would involve then, in your case, coming back to the UK, identifying where your dentist is and going and recovering your dental records and and sending your dental records then out to Thailand to be matched against one of the thousands of victims that we've recovered Mm. until we establish a unique match, that being yourself. So uh, would you say that, like, for example, with the bombings, if there was someone near the vicinity of where the first explosion, for example, happened, does that make it harder to identify them, given that they were close to an explosion, maybe a lot of the biological matter has been damaged in the process i mean i guess the same thing would be the case with the flooding as well you know uh yeah yeah without without going too deep into the grisly side of it but 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 yes yes it can do um and yes it will do um and in obviously in in some cases we have what we would describe as disrupted bodies where we then have to use dna then um to establish the the, the the link between the various um, parts of the disruptive body. So, um, like for example, with DNA analysis, uh, how is there a database that you can go to to kind of match up DNA? Like, because as you said, mm. most people don't have a criminal record. So, where else do they get that sort of information? Of like, right? Like well, in in exactly the same uh, way that we would go looking for fingerprints, we would go looking for DNA. Um, in, a, in a variety of different locations, we may be looking for um, what we call a direct sample of DNA. So if, for example, um, you'd had a recent visit to a hospital and had a, had, had a blood test done and they'd still got that blood sample, um, mm. we, we could recover that. Um, then we um, have uh, what we call surrogate samples of DNA, which is basically items where you may have left your DNA, such as your toothbrush, your comb, your hairbrush, um, clothing, that we would then recover and search that for uh, a profile, a, a DNA profile of yourself, which again, once we'd established a profile, that we would then send that profile across to the country where the disasters occurred and ask them to match that against one of the profiles that they'd recovered from the victims. So um, there is then a further um, aspect to DNA, which is what we call familial DNA. And that's when you start taking samples from members of the direct members of the family. And you then establish um, what the relationship is between 
that person that you've obtained the sample from and the missing person and from there you basically drawing a family tree you can work out the relationship then and start to establish matches using using familial um dna um so i was going to i was going to move on to um uh, just finally uh, the the airplane crashes uh, with the thai airways aircraft and the air france aircraft uh, again you know this is a completely different type of disaster yeah um in in this sort of in this sort of one what's again what what are the major difficulties uh, i guess if if the plane has crashed overseas you know over an ocean or something like that how long is it before effectively you can't actually find the victims and you know things like that how what are the difficulties associated with yeah certainly so certainly with the um the air france the air france crash um that that sadly went missing over the atlantic ocean um so the first challenge in relation to um recovery is to identify where where the plane actually went missing um and that was certainly a challenge in the in the early stages of the that response because the initial search area was three times the size of Europe, wow. um, which is a ginormous task. But but basically, um, when when that plane um, took off from São Paulo um, and um, headed off over the um, over the sea. Um, effectively it went off the radar and then it wouldn't have come back on the radar until it came back into um, the uh, radar range of Senegal off the African coast. Mm -hmm. So when it went missing, um, we initially had no idea um, exactly where it would be between Brazil and Senegal. Um, But we employ some really, really good experts. Um, and so very, very quickly, the parts to the jigsaw start being put together. Um, and we can narrow those search areas down quite quickly. But in, in, in terms of, of that uh, particular incident, um, it was six days before we recovered anything of any significance. Um, and... Uh, and, and, and certainly with tidal flows and so on and so forth, um, a lot can happen in six days. That's incredible. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the initial uh, is a bit different to what you usually do because I guess identif- to know who was on board, it's already documented because um, obviously it's an aircraft. Um, but yeah, obviously finding it is an issue. Yeah, we have, we, we have classifications within disaster victim identification. We have classifications of incidents. So you can have um, what we call a closed incident. And a closed incident means that we have um, a list of the people that are involved in the incident. So in relation to applying generally, we would have a, a passenger manifesto. Um, so we would have the, the, the names. Or in the case of a... Um, a um, a, a sort of natural disaster. That's what we call an open incident. Right. And that, that that is basically where we have absolutely no idea initially who would be involved other than um, a significant number of the community or local population. Um, and it, it's then a much 
more difficult process then to establish who are the the, the, the missing people that are of interest to you um, for the purposes of, of recovery and identification. Because, as I mentioned earlier, you, you always have many more people reported missing than actual victims. Of course. Because, because families, understandably, very understandably, go into panic and when they can't make contact with somebody, they report them missing. Yeah. And it may well be that actually they are safe and well, um, but their mobile phone signal doesn't work. They've lost their phone during the, during the disaster. Or they may, they may have been taken to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 101 different reasons as to why they can't make contact. Um, it doesn't always mean that they're um, sadly a, a, a victim in terms of being deceased. Yeah, your line of work seems to just, you know, full of curveballs. And like you said, it's, it must be, in a sense, a very interesting challenge. Uh, you, you know, each each challenge is different and the different curveballs are just thrown at you. I guess, you know, just we're coming up to the hour mark, um, maybe on a, on a lighter side. Um, in terms of your whole career, you know, it's so extensive. You know, you travelled all over the world. Uh, you've done missions uh, too far to to go into detail on every single one, but what was the, you'd say the most memorable part of your career? Um, certainly, certainly the tsunami was the most challenging. It was certainly the one that I learned the most lessons from. Um, but the most memorable part, I would say, is the future. Because I haven't finished at the moment. I'm still working in in different countries around the world um hopefully passing on some of my experience and learning in the training that we now deliver um i do a fair amount of 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 working in india at the moment um australia um i've done some recent work in croatia and turkey um so um I'm, i'm i'm not ready to retire yet um and um hopefully from the experiences i've picked up i can still pass those on and 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 leave that legacy of learning if you like an experience to uh, to those in the future yeah i think anyone who has the pleasure to work with you would be you know highly gifted and and i'd put at an advantage and maybe just to mention in in january 2010 you know, you were awarded the OBE for your services to UK police in, in Her Majesty's honour. Um, what was it like receiving that OBE? I mean, what was that kind of like a, a f- affirmation of all your good work kind of put into one one um, thing? Yes, yeah, so <clears throat> I think it was really. I mean, obviously it was something that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Um, the letter just arrives and then you're sworn to secrecy for... <laughs> a, a, a few weeks then before it's actually announced. Um, but, I mean, obviously the, the experience of the day for, for myself and the family and yeah. um, certainly in relation to um, recognition, then it does bring it home to you. It was, yeah, it was a good day. We had a, we had a nice day out and went to the palace and... Had a, no- had a nice meal out at the Goring Hotel, and oh, um, I spent a lot of money on dresses for my my wife and two daughters, <laughs> and 
Yeah, it was an expensive day. It was an expensive day. <laughs> Yeah. That sounds yeah. That sounds wonderful, and yeah. maybe your wife and daughter got more out of it than you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, prob- probably, yeah, probably. I had um, I had one uh, one funny experience um, after we had the ceremony at, at, at the palace. Uh, as I say, we went to the the Goring Hotel, uh, which is close to the palace, and uh, I'd booked a private room there just for the family to have a meal in the afternoon. Wonderful. Um, and it was we had our own private waiters and waitresses, and oh, wow. and, and it was and it was fantastic. Uh, till it came to paying for the bill, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and um, that was the most memorable part. I see. <laughs> it, 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 it was in a way, yes, because they, they they bought the bill and I gave them my credit card or my debit card, um, and they came back to me and said, "I'm sorry, uh, it's been referred to the bank." Um, <laughs> So, so I couldn't, I couldn't pay this bill. Um, and what had happened was, when I went to the palace, um, the, you can um, elect to have the the queen's photographer and video of the ceremony, so that you've got something to remember. Um, and I elected to do that, and I'd used my card at the palace to uh, to pay for the, the photographs and the, and the DVD on that morning. And so when uh, my payment was refused at the Goring Hotel, I went outside on my mobile phone, not a happy man at all, <laughs> not a happy man, and rang the bank. Um, and the bank said, uh, yes, we've, uh, we've suspended your card for unusual activity. I, I said, would you like to explain to me what unusual activity has taken place with my card? And they said, do you know your card was used this morning at Buckingham Palace? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, it was me that used it. Do you know who they, I am? They, yeah. <laughs> they, said, they said, well, that's flagged up on our system as unusual activity. And I'd say, yeah, that sounds about right. I don't go there every Friday. <laughs> but on this occasion, it was me, and I did go there. And, yes, I did use that card. And I would be extremely grateful if you would make it live again so that I can pay for the meal at the Goring Hotel <laughs> before I leave. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so it clearly flagged up with the bank. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant oh my days yeah i mean that's a good way to end the uh the mm-hmm. podcast and you know just on my behalf i'd like to thank you for all the great work you've done you know all the human lives you've improved and you know hopefully you know affected in a great positive way for sure uh that can't be understated and you probably hear this a lot but honestly like kudos <laughs> yeah, thank you yeah an incredible career man i have uh i have one tenth of the career you've yeah. had because, uh, yeah totally. you've got you've traveled the world and really done some great work i haven't finished yet yeah <laughs> yeah of course of course you haven't even finished that's the, that's the even more impressive part of it all anyway because yeah. more yeah. to go so uh yeah we'll uh we'll see where life takes us in the future exactly um i guess for the listeners thank you for listening and thank you for tuning in today as you can see we had an amazing guest today so you know uh, give us a like give us um, a share you know share it to your family and friends who are really interested in, in these kind of scientific topics and uh, we look to hear from you and see you soon thank you uh, steve why didn't you say who said having fun and being serious can't go hand in hand you that was bloody brilliant